Good morning. Everybody smile. Glad to be here. Um, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited about today. And uh, we're going to be actually in the book of Acts again this week. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 7. We're going through um, the, the 412 readings that we've been doing. And just as we go through these readings each week, we're taking um, some of those scriptures that we're reading as a church and we're um, using those for the messages each week. It's been cool to see how God's spoken to me through these readings and just um, always excited to be able to share that with you guys. And so um, we'll be in Acts chapter 7 uh, today and we're going to read Acts 7 and then, or some of Acts 7 and then some of Acts 9. And I really want us to focus today on uh, a man by the name of Saul who later became Paul and really looking at his life and what we can learn from him, which is so much, we can never cover it in one service. But I really want to hit some of the highlights of um, Paul's life and, and the things that God did in him and the things that God then did through him. And so um, Acts chapter 7, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. And this section is about a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen uh, is a follower of Jesus, and we're going to see some details about his life in just a second as we read this. But I want to read about Stephen before we read about Paul, because I really want us to be able to contrast um, where Stephen is in Acts 7 and where Paul is in Acts 7 and Acts 9 as he comes to meet Christ. And so let's read um, Acts 7, verses 8 through 15. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy, this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that, like the face of an angel. You go on and read into Acts um, chapter 7. Actually, that was chapter 6, sorry. But Acts chapter 7, and... Uh, you get into that and you start to see where Stephen is preaching a message. He basically goes back to the beginning of um, all that God had been doing through the Jewish people. And he's showing them this, this, um, how Jesus was the one who all of these Old Testament passages were pointing to. And then they liked his message so much that they end up stoning him. And so he basically calls them stiff-necked people who killed the Son of God, and they didn't like it very much, and so they ended up killing him. And during this time, as he's being stoned, it says that um, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And so we see in this that Stephen, uh, who is a follower of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming boldly the gospel message of Jesus, is being stoned because of um, this message and because of his faith. Now let's flip over to Acts chapter 9. And I'm actually going to read out of 9 this time. It'll be the same chapter that I tell you this time, I promise. And so Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we're going to pick up again with Saul. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Then the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the message. God, I thank you so much for the word that we are able to hold in our hands, and God, just how it is living and active. It is God-breathed. It does teach us your ways, your will. It teaches us, God, um, where we're out of your will and brings us back into your will for our lives. I pray, God, that your word would do that for us today, that we would um, just encounter you through it, God, that your spirit would empower your word. God, I, I pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts and produce fruit in our lives. God, let us see clearly again today, God, who you are and what you've done, who you've made us to be. And God, that we would rejoice as we are here and as we leave this place and as we go through our week because of the great things you've done. Lord, we love you and thank you that you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this week I have had an opportunity. I've been Uh, preaching some nights. I did three nights at the Tattnall County Camp Meeting over in Tattnall uh, County. That's why they call it the Tattnall County Camp Meeting. And 
Um, so I was over there for three nights, and uh, it's an old campground, and um, they have this camp meeting every year. In fact, it's been going on for 151 years. And so I was able to speak over there three nights. Um, the second night I was there, we, they would do a few songs, and then they would have some announcements and, and touch on some things that people might need to know. And then they would um, have another song or two, and then they would do the offering. During the offering, um, someone would usually come up and play the piano um, and, and just for the music while the offering was going on. When I was there uh, the second night, I saw them helping an elderly lady up to one of the pianos. She had to get up a couple of steps. She could hardly um, walk to get up there, so they were really almost carrying her up there, really helping her get there. And, you know, I was thinking, well, she's going to be able to play because I really didn't know. I mean, she was hardly able to get up to the keyboard or to the piano. And so as she gets up there and we're taking up the offering, um, she begins to play and, and didn't take long before I recognized that the song she was playing was Jesus Loves Me. Um, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And so she's kind of just playing it very slowly. And I don't know what it was, but there was something about seeing this lady who I later found out had been playing the piano there for 54 years at the camp meetings. There was something about seeing this lady who comes up, all of this experience with God, all have been walking with God all of these years, and then she sits down to play, and she very softly and slowly begins to play a very simple song. And it was powerful. And for me, I almost lost it right there. I was like, <laughs> you know, and because it was just a reminder of, how simple it really is, how simple God has made it, how simple his love is. And it was kind of funny because she started and she was playing and I was like, man, you know, she's barely able to play it, but she's playing this sweet, simple song. And then she got to like the second verse and she was like, -na 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 -na. I was like, well, I guess her fingers are still nimble, but she was uh, it, was in, in, it was impressive. It was powerful. It, it meant a lot to me to see that and just to remind me of the simplicity of God's love and his, his love for us and the power of that. And to hear that and see that was really good to see. And it made me think about even in the life of Saul and, and just how Saul's life, who became Paul later as we know him and wrote so many of the books of the New Testament, the letters that we read to Romans and the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all of these books that he wrote, the life that he lived, um, the life that he ultimately gave up as a martyr for the faith, the way he defended the gospel of grace, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. His life is remarkable. It's powerful. And to see how it all began with Paul is even more remarkable when you see where Paul was, where he came from. We read the first part of this in chapter 6 of Acts where Stephen is seized. He's a man full of God. He's full of the Spirit. He has come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of his life. He's 
walking in the power of the Spirit. He preaches this bold message, and then they stone him. He calls them stiff-necked. You killed the Son of God. You, you did these things. They stone him. Saul, who would become Paul, is there, and he's holding, and, and, and they're laying their clothes at his feet, and he's witnessing this. He's a part of this. He sees this. And I want you to recognize in this moment how different Stephen and Saul are. Because when you look at Stephen, you see someone who recognizes that the way to salvation, that all of the Old Testament scriptures, that everything that this world has shown us from creation to the cross, it was about Jesus. It was all pointing to him. And when you look at Stephen, you see someone who has come to a revelation of, I cannot get to God by any other means than through Christ. And besides that, why would I want to try to get to God by any other means than through Christ? Because this is the source of life. He is the source of life. And so we see Stephen, whose mindset you could look at and say that now that the new has come in Jesus, the old has passed away. So it's no longer by works of the law. We can no longer think in that way. Even though it was always by faith, the Jewish people had come to a place where they were thinking, we're going to earn this. We're going to work this out ourselves. We're going to make ourselves right with God. And then Stephen comes to a revelation of Jesus, he's filled with the Spirit, and he recognizes that, look, we've got to set aside the old way now that the new way has come. Do away with the old, now embrace the new. Now you look at Paul. Paul is on the other end of the spectrum. He's way apart from Stephen in this. There were some that we can see in Scripture who kind of wanted to say, well, maybe these, these systems can coexist. Maybe this system of righteousness through law can coexist with God's plan of reconciliation. But I think Stephen and Paul saw this disparity as clearly or more clearly than anyone at this time because on the other end of the spectrum is Saul, who by his own testimony was flawless in regards to the law and keeping the rules and trying to make himself righteous at this time. And so in Paul's mind and in his mindset, what Paul is thinking is the old is right, the new has to go. The new was a threat to what Paul saw as the truth. The new was a threat to everything that Paul knew. The new was a threat to everything Paul had worked for, everything that Paul had worked towards. It's why he was so zealous, as he even says himself, to persecute the church, to do away with it. It wasn't enough um, that it didn't grow or that it didn't prosper the new the church and this gospel of Jesus. It was something that had to be completely done away with. It had to be removed. And Paul was serious about this. He was zealous for this purpose. It's why in Acts 9, he's gone and gotten letters to say that he had the authority of the Jewish people to go to Damascus to arrest any of those who were followers of the way or followers of Jesus, Christians, and bring them to prison. And so he's serious about this. One of the greatest... Um, 
to me testimonies to the reality of Jesus and his resurrection is the life of Paul. Because when we look at Stephen over here and we've got Paul over here, they are literally on opposite ends of the spectrum. They're 180 degrees different. And yet when we see Paul on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to Paul, it's where he goes not from here to the middle. Paul goes from over here to where Stephen was. A man who was persecuting the church, killing Christians, putting them in prison, that was so zealous to snuff out this new movement. He's now come to faith. And his life, his testimony to me is one of the greatest proofs that you can just look at reasonably and see the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. The way his life changed. And when we look at Paul, his whole life was lived to defend the gospel, to preserve the gospel so that we can hold the true gospel, the good news of Jesus, that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. He fought for this. He, 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 was, he went through all kinds of, of hell on earth to preserve this. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to hear this because this is some of what Paul went through as an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, as someone who preserved and protected the gospel. In this chapter, he's really trying to establish and defend his apostleship against some false apostles who have come in undermining the work and the gospel of Jesus And so about them, he says this in verse 22 of chapter 11. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. He says, I am more. And listen, what he's saying is, look, maybe they have the right pedigree. Maybe they came from the right people, he says, but so did I. And he says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. He's like, why am I boasting in what I am and what I have? The one we should be boasting in is Jesus who has brought this good news and salvation to us. But he goes on and he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Listen to this. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashings minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? 
He's basically saying, listen, if you want to look at what these false apostles who are coming in to undermine the truth of God's word have done and who they are, then look, I've got all of this too. I've done more. I've been, been through more stuff. I've been hurt more. I've been beat more. I've been shipwrecked more. I've been through all of this. He's saying, look at all these things that I've persevered through. The question I think about when I come to that passage and I think about Paul's life, I think about the transition from where he was to where he ended up being. I think about all he endured. I think about all he persevered through. I think about how he worked hard, how he gave his life and ended up giving his life literally as he was martyred for his faith. And the question that I had to come to and that I had to wrestle with is why did Paul do this? Why did Paul lay down his life for Christ? Why did Paul lay down his life for the churches in his day? And listen, here's where we ought to be in a little bit of awe and amazement of what God did in and through Paul. Why did Paul lay down his life to preserve the gospel for us so that we can hold it in our hands? Why did he do that? There's one simple answer that I come to. There's only one reason that I can see in this. And that reason is I don't think Paul ever got over the grace of God in his life. He never got past it. When grace and truth appeared to him on the road to Damascus, it changed everything. We have a tendency to look at what Paul did and be in awe. What we should really be in awe of is not really just what Paul did, but what changed him. What changed his life? What made him different? Where did the transformation come from? Why did he do what he did? Why did he go through shipwrecks and beatings and floggings and being beat with rods and whips and all of these things? Why did he endure nakedness and imprisonment and all of this stuff? It's because he never got over what Jesus had done for him and in him. I want you to think about this with Saul at this point in Acts chapter 9. Because here Saul is, he's breathing out threats, he's going and trying to kill Christians, he's persecuting Christians, he's doing all of this stuff. And as he's going to Damascus with the same thing in mind, Jesus appears to him. And and listen to this, when he falls to the ground, he hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? At this point, he's on the ground, He's blinded by light, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Then he asks, who are you, Lord? Now listen to the next verse. He says, Jesus says this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Have you ever had a moment when you went, oh, dang, That is exactly what happened to Paul in that moment. 
He is persecuting the church. He's, he's persecuting Christians. All of a sudden, he's blinded by the glory of Christ and this light that's shining from him, and he falls on his face. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, listen, who are you? He recognizes like this, Lord, who are you? And then he hears these words, I am Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. And I think a couple of things Paul realizes in this moment. One is that he's been completely wrong and that Jesus is who he said he is. And then two, he realizes that every time I have hit the church, Jesus felt the pain. Isn't that crazy? He doesn't say, Saul, you're persecuting my church. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, Jesus is the head of the church. When the church is hurt, then Jesus feels it. And so for Paul, he comes to this realization that one, I've been really wrong. Two, I've done a lot of really wrong things. And three, he had to think this, y'all. I'm about to die. I mean, think about that. If you were Saul, you'd done the things that you had done, were doing the things that you were doing, and all of a sudden the glory of God appears before you, your first thought is an oh, happy day. Your first thought is, he's about to kill me. Not only have I been persecuting the church, but he says I hurt him. I'm dead. And I think what was so powerful for Saul for his entire existence after this moment, after Ananias comes and prays for him, the scales fall off his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. The thing that was so powerful for Saul and should be powerful for all of us who've come to faith in Christ is this, that when God should have killed me, he gave me life. That when I should have died, when I was dead in sin, when my physical life should have ended, when I should have spent eternity separated from God, he gave me life. And I do not believe that Saul, who we know is Paul, and I've said that like 15 times, I don't think he ever got over it. The grace of God that he received and listened, that he continued to receive, transformed his life, transformed his purpose. I believe he forever lived his life in awe of God and what God's done. He, how powerful of an experience for him to be able to go from Saul, the murdering persecutor of Christians, to him being able to write in his own words, I have become righteous in Christ. I've received a righteousness by faith in Jesus. How could he go from who he was to who he now is? And 
He didn't live in condemnation. How did he do that? How could he do that? He's the one that wrote Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because on the road to Damascus, he received God's grace. He recognized God's grace. And after that, he was receiving and walking with Jesus. And Jesus continued to teach. Jesus continued to fill. He continued to long for the one he experienced, even as scary as it had to be, recognizing the love of Jesus that he had given him. That's all he wanted. I want more of him. You can even go to Philippians. Why don't we do that? Philippians chapter three. This is such a powerful moment for Saul. Listen to what he says. He's talking about how much he's done as a, as a, a Jewish person, as a Pharisee. And he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament and yet his one cry is this, I just wanna know him. What he experienced on the road to Damascus, what he experienced in the Holy Spirit that filled him, gave him a new heart, changed him, gave him a heart to worship God. What he saw when the scales fall off, fell off of his eyes is crazy to think about this. But when Saul lost his physical sight, he gained his spiritual sight so that when the scales fell off his eyes after this encounter with Jesus, the world never looked the same again. It was completely different, transforming so much so that what drove Saul's life, what drove Paul's life was, I want to know him. Paul, don't you know him? I want to know him. He tells us that God in Ephesians 2, he tells us that God's lavished upon us the riches of his grace. See, Paul knew what we need to come to understand more and more, that you'll never exhaust and, and never fully explore the riches of God's grace, the riches of who he is. Paul forever lived his life in awe of God. It's why he went through what he did, and he stayed where he stood. He stood firm in the midst of all the hell that he went through. Is because he knew that God's grace is sufficient for me, no matter what I face, if God can take me from here to here and make me right with him, then there's surely no force of hell or anything that can come against me that's going to separate me from his love. If I was there and he loved me, if I was his enemy and he loved me, then surely he loves me now that I am his son. And he forever walked in that relationship with Jesus. Never losing sight of that. Never losing sight. I don't think he was perfect. I don't think, and so. <laughs> we know he's not. He, even in his last days, recognized himself as the chief of sinners, as the least of the apostles. But he knew God's grace. 
He knew that his competence, he knew that his righteousness didn't come from himself. It's why Paul didn't want to boast in himself. The only thing he wanted to boast in was Jesus and his work. And so this grace has come to us. The Bible says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. See, I hear people a lot of times, they'll say, well, sometimes you need to give them grace and sometimes you need to just give them truth, good old truth. Can you separate the two? The gospel's good news, right? And what they're saying is, Sometimes you need to just come down hard on them and sometimes you need to kind of pat them on the back and say, go out there, you're forgiven. But see, I think that if we don't preach the full gospel, then, then we're trying to divide Jesus because the truth is that we're sinners. The truth is we deserve to die. The truth is that, 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 that God should kill us, not heal us, but the truth is also this, that Jesus did for us on the cross what we could never have done for ourselves. That the truth is that Jesus died for us, went in a tomb, came out three days later, ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit who now lives in us to heal us. Now he's working in us so that we cry out, Abba, Father, so that Jesus has done for us what we could not do. The truth is, sinner, the saint. Grace is the power of salvation, the power to saint. Grace is not some soft, cheesy love that we just kind of need just to make ourselves feel better. Grace is the power of God to take us from death to life. Grace is the power in us. It's the motivator in us. It's the way of the Spirit. It's the way of love. It's the way of Christ coming into us. It's not just forgiveness. It is God's unmerited favor, but it's God's unmerited favor for a complete transformation. The trouble we get into is that we try to transform ourselves rather than just leaning into and falling upon the grace of God. Listen, we, we talk as Christians about humbling ourselves. We talk as Christians about surrender. We talk as Christians about, about um, doing this or not doing that. We, we talk as Christians about the danger of pride. We talk as Christians about all these things, and all those things are true. But I'm telling you, if we want to walk as merciful people, if we want to walk as loving people, if we want to walk as humble people, then we need to just fix our eyes on the grace of God demonstrated through the cross, resurrection, ascension, and giving of the Spirit. And there's no possible way that we can walk around boasting or trusting in anything of ourselves because we recognize that the truth and the grace of God is the only reason I can stand before him. That whatever I have become is not because of me, it's because of him. Whatever God 
God's done is not because of me, it's because of him. So how could I stand here today and boast about what God's done in almost 10 years when I know apart from him, I am a child of hell. I am an enemy of God, but in him, I become the righteousness of God. And in him, he's given me a gift of faith that I can simply trust, that I can simply recognize that I'm his workmanship, that his grace is working in my life, that for some reason, he put his hand on my life. He put his hand on your life in all of our imperfection, out of his great love for us. He put his hand on our life. He saved us. He says, look to me. I reconciled you. Walk in this relationship. Look at my grace. Receive the truth. Receive the spirit. Receive my love and your life will never be the same again. But we've lost the simplicity. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If that gets old, it's because we've lost clarity of who God is and what he's done. We've traded clarity of the gospel for obscurity. Sin caused everything to be obscure. God clarified it through Jesus. Listen to Titus 2. I'm now I'm paranoid. I'm going to read out of the wrong chapter. <laughs> Titus 2, verse 11. He's given Titus instruction on how to lead the church. He's talking about um, how we live our lives in the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in 11. And he says, gives us some ways that we should live. But the Bible hardly ever, if ever, gives us something to do without giving us the motivation for it. Verse 11, this is what he says, for. So in other words, because, listen. He says, do these things because. He says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. This is Paul writing, eager to do what is good. And so we look at this, and what I want you to to see out of this is the power of God's grace and what God has revealed. He says the reason we live the way we live is because the grace of God has appeared. The Greek word for appeared is the word that we get our word, epiphany. It means that it has come in the form of a person. In other words, what he's saying, when Jesus appeared, God's grace was personified. When Jesus appeared, God's truth was personified. It was in the person of Christ. He said, now we've seen this grace. The reason we don't live this way and we live this way is not because I think this is the right thing to do. It's because the grace of God has arrested me. It has taken hold of me. It has amazed me so that there is no other way to live because there is no other source of life. Grace is not some intangible thing grace is Jesus grace and truth are Christ we see that in him so how does grace teach us to say no to ungodliness 
Because we walk with him. We're motivated. I can walk with him. I can know him. Are you kidding me? God's made me right with him. As sinful as I am, as lost as I've been, as much as I stray, as much as my heart is prone to wander, I know him. I want to know him more. I've tasted that he's good and it's satisfying and yet I hunger for more of him. Paul recognized the grace. He saw it. It was revealed to him in Jesus even though he was blinded. In that moment when he couldn't see, he saw everything so much more clearly than he'd ever seen. Through the eyes of faith. See, grace is the power of salvation, absolutely. But grace is also power over sin and its dominion in our life. He sets us free to live for him. It's the truth, it's the grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. It's the power of transformation that we don't live like we used to live. But why? Because, man, I'm walking with him. I'm following him. I, I get to know him. I get to be with him. Are we, are we living in that place of awe of how can this be true? How? Wow, it is true. Have we really looked at who he is and what he's done, who we were and who we've become? Is that compelling us to our purpose? Is that compelling us to follow? So here's the thing. If we want to become more like Jesus, we don't focus on Jesus's attributes, his character and nature. We focus on him, the relationship with him. And in him, we see the character. We see the nature of God. We see who he is. We see what he's done. And when I fix my eyes on him, when I come to his word to see clearly who he is, to see how he saved me, it's impossible for me to live in grace and to see his grace consistently and to stay the same because it's transforming. God's grace gives us perspective. Think about how Paul saw so differently after his encounter with Jesus. When his eyes were opened, everything was different. It changed his perspective. We are so quick to put our eyes on what is temporary that we forget what's eternal. We, we live dictated and controlled by circumstances and things that go on around us so much so that we're so quick to take our eyes off of him and put them on the things that are going on around us today I'm encouraging you as always put your eyes on him to live in all of his grace see really seeing and receiving God's grace makes it impossible to live a life of complacency makes it impossible to live a life of apathy think the one of the reasons that the church is so apathetic is that we've lost our awe of his grace we've either never experienced or aren't experiencing daily 
the truth, the grace in the person of Christ. And if we aren't doing that, then there's no way for us as a church to fulfill our purpose. There's no way we're going to become the people that God created us to be. So how do we do that? What do we do when we recognize we're off course, when we're off track, when I've strayed, my heart's prone to wander, now I've wandered, what do we do? We put our eyes back on Him. We remember the grace. We recognize His grace that even though I've wandered, grace brings me back, the Spirit brings me back. And now, now I've been reconciled with him my life is forever different it's forever changed it's not perfect but I'm being perfected because of his grace and his work and his truth in my life today I I want to pray for us I, I want to Just simply pray. Listen, this is what I really believe with all my heart. I believe that the church has lost its way. The church is ineffective. The church is declining. The church is all these things. But the reason that that's happened is because we've taken our eyes off of him. We're no longer in awe of the fact that Jesus loves me that the Bible tells me he loves me. And even in my failings, my shortcomings, my successes and my victories, God's love remains the same. When I see him, my sinfulness, the work of the cross, the recreation of my life, it leads me to him. I want to pray for us. Listen, I I do want to do this today. I want to give you an opportunity that if you don't know Christ, if you've never come to this place of salvation, of relationship with him, and you don't know him, but God's been speaking to your heart. This is what I know. There's a lot of times that people are here and they'll sit for days, you know, weeks upon weeks and God's speaking to their heart and they know that they need to respond to him by simply saying, God, I want to trust you with my life. I want to trust you for salvation. I want to receive your grace. I see who you are and what you've done. God, I want to rest in you, my eternity in you. And people will sit there and they know and they know and they know and that's okay. But I'm just encouraging you, if that's you, then Just respond. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to celebrate. Somebody goes from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. And that's to the glory of God. And it's something awesome that should never get old. So if you're here and that's you, you know the Lord's been drawing you to himself. He's been speaking to your heart. Today, you say, I want to receive God's grace. I want to receive his power, his forgiveness, his love for me today by faith. I want to live the rest of my life in awe of him. Then I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Today's the day of salvation.
I want to pray for the rest of us and just pray that we would not leave here the same as we came in and it's not because we just double down on an effort to do better but because the spirit has awakened us to the grace and truth of Jesus so I want to pray you can respond if you'd like to come pray today you come down and you spend some time praying we'll sing and we'll be dismissed lord i thank you for who you are and i thank you for the power of your grace i thank you god that seeing you never gets old god i pray that obscurity and distortion would leave and that the power of your grace would replace it the power of clarity of who you are as you've revealed to us in jesus would replace that Lord, just move in our hearts, move in our church. Compel us, God, to your purposes through your spirit. Give us greater hunger, a thirst as we taste that you're good, that we want more of you. God, we do love you and thank you in Jesus' name.